Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk on what is D plus 2, the 19th of September, is tell you um, the events or try to capture the events of 24 hours in Arnhem on that day, the 19th of September, known as Black Tuesday to the men of 1st Airborne and 1st Polish Parachute Brigade. Um, now, for the sake of telling the story, there are four sectors to talk about. So we're going to work our way around the four sectors, start at the bridge and end at the bridge. So we have the bridge, which is the road bridge over the Nader Rhine that 1st Airborne, along with the railway bridge, was to hold until relief. And of course, the railway bridge was blown up on the first day. So this is the, the business end of the battle, if you want. The woods, um, the ground to the northwest of Arnhem, north of the railway line that runs into the town that seemed to offer an alternative route into the bridge. The town, the town of Arnhem itself, through which the division would have to fight to reach the men at the bridge. And the village, Oosterbeek, the village that lay between the drop zones and the landing zones to the west 
of Arnhem and the town of Arnhem itself and the bridges there in the east. It was here in the village that First Airborne had uh, headquarters were situated there. Now, this is one of those stories where I'll be saying meanwhile an awful lot. There are lots of moving parts, but as a picture of a situation in which what could go wrong did go wrong, Black Tuesday pretty much takes the biscuit. It's definitive, by no means comprehensive. I hope this gives some impression of the situation um, on what was a terrible day for First Airborne and the Poles. So we'll start and end at midnight at the bridge. So midnight to noon at the bridge. At the bridge, Lieutenant Colonel John Frost, one of First Airborne's most experienced battalion commanders, orders his men, his own battalion and other units from First Parachute Brigade who'd got there, to shore up their positions and to stop sniping as ammunition had to be preserved. It was clear they were going to be neither relieved nor resupplied by the rest of First Airborne Division who'd spent the previous day trying and failing to fight their way through the town. Monday morning's suicidal attack by Hauptsturmführer Victor Grabner had been successfully repulsed but the two and a half hour long firefight had cost Frost's men dear in terms of ammunition. So this is the thing to bear in mind, every single battle they find themselves in, they're using up ammo. Frost knew that stopping sniping would give the Germans an advantage. It enabled the Germans to improve his positions. For example, manning the six pounder anti-tank guns that were positioned out in the open, pointing down the approaches to the bridge would become impossible. So they had anti-tank guns that they could fire. If anything came up the bridge, they could take that out. Now, protecting those positions because they're out in the open, if you're not sniping anymore, becomes more difficult. There'd been several attacks that night. At three in the morning, Captain Mackay's sappers noticed a group of German soldiers forming up outside the schoolhouse. The Germans oblivious to the danger they were in. Mindful of saving ammunition, the sappers threw grenades at the Germans, killing something like 30 men. Mackay, in anticipation of not being relieved by Second Army on schedule, had ordered his men to pack twice the ammunition. In the rest of the perimeter, fires were set to light up the bridge and other fires were put out. The men tried to grab some rest. Frost's laconic account says that the day started with grim expectation. Tuesday morning came and with it we expected to see the Polish parachute brigade arrive. In the original plan they were to drop south of the bridge. I dreaded to think of the reception they would have. For Frost it was crystal clear that the divisional plan that to reach the bridge at Arnhem had failed. Nevertheless, 2nd Army were due in Arnhem on the 19th so there was something to hold out for. If 2nd Army was delayed, it might be considered a reasonable expectation. At Primasoli Bridge, the previous year, land forces had been similarly, similarly delayed, as James and I have discussed before. That the entire airborne plan had misfired presented an immediate problem. The rest of 1st Parachute Brigade, due at the bridge and its environs on Sunday evening, had plainly got stuck. Frost didn't know the details of the Monday's battle in the town to his west. The only radio net that was working was the Royal Artillery's but the absence of the rest of the brigade spoke for itself. Monday's efforts had plainly failed. Whatever Tuesday would bring, Frost and his men would have to hold on. The only advantage they did possess was that they were in defence and did not have to take the initiative. The water supply had been cut off. The number of wounded in the houses cellars grew steadily. Medical supplies were dwindling like everything else. They'd been packed with the assumption that relief would come within two days. The REMC had set up shop in the hospital in the town to the west beyond Frost's perimeter, so there weren't medics readily on call in all of the buildings. Movement between positions was so difficult that men were having to treat the wounded wherever they were. Mackay's wounded were being tended to in the cellar below the school. He'd been on a first aid course, but that was the limit of his medical qualifications. There was another, he wrote, who was a little rocky, with one bullet through the stomach and three through the arm. The stomach wound was all right, nothing vital was hit, and I shoved a plug in it. Most of the wounded were suffering from shock and fatigue. I had plenty of morphia and kept them all well doped. Mackay himself had a head wound. 
His squadron's war diary notes attacks roughly every hour and a half, each of them repulsed, each a self-contained story of courage and desperation on both sides. At 10 o'clock, it tells of Lieutenant Lindley knocking out a tank with a gammon bomb from above, in other words, from a window. At noon, it reads 1,200 hours, enemy attempt to set up mortar, due north of school position, when in place, this is eliminated and crew killed. This was typical of the pressure around the bridge. The Germans had realised there was little point in infantry assaults. Instead, Tuesday morning saw the Germans probing with tanks, mortaring, starting fires, sniping, all the time wearing down the British defenders. Nowhere was safe within Frost's area as the Germans pressed their attacks home, nor was it safe for the Germans either. The Paris shouted encouragement to the enemy of the come on you bastards variety, their morale not flagging even as things grew more intense and the prospect of victory slipped away. Frost knew how hard-pressed he was and how vulnerable his position was. At around 10 that morning, the Germans had brought up three Mark III tanks from the east. Taking advantage of the shrinking perimeter, they were able to stay out of the range of the six-pounder anti-tank guns. They started shelling A Company's position and one of the houses had to be evacuated. Something had to be done. The redoubt might be split in two, because the houses were other, either sides of the causeway running off the bridge. Captain Frank from A Company, who'd ordered the evacuation, went forward with one of his men and appeared and knocked out one of the tanks. The others withdrew. Major Tatham Water demanded the house was recaptured. As Frank recalled, Digby Tatham Water came walking up calmly across from Battalion H crew with his brolly, quite unconcerned about any danger. He was very angry with me for letting McDermott's platoon come back and ordered me to retake the house. I got McDermott's platoon together, 15 to 20 men only, and they set off from under the bridge, all very tired, just shrugging their shoulders and going back. But in no defeatist mood or anything like that, they went back and pushed the Germans out. There was probably about the same number of Huns. McDermott was shot as he went along the hall in the lower stomach. I think he was conscious, but there was a lot of blood. I jabbed him with morphine and he was taken away. Then we were attacked from the direction of the banked ramp. We manned the windows and answered back, polishing off at least four of them. One came crashing forward bra very bravely until we stopped him. Lieutenant McDermott died on the Friday. This incident points to the fragility of the defence at Arnhem Bridge. Mark III tanks, far from the latest battlefield equipment, could pose such a direct threat to the men holding the bridge, though they were at least vulnerable to peer rounds. What would happen if heavier tanks were brought to bear? They wouldn't have long to wait to find out. At lunchtime on Tuesday, the initiative and time were firmly on the German side. So that's the bridge. Now we go into the town. In the town, the situation was essentially reversed. The Germans were in defence and First Airborne was trying to take the initiative, but the advantage nevertheless lay with the Germans. This phase of the fighting is characterised by confusion, brutality and bravery. It illustrates that you can arrive with all the thunderclap surprise you like on a Sunday, but by Tuesday the novelty has definitely worn off. Examples of confusion? First Airborne's commanding officer, Major General Roy Urquhart, had gone forward to get a grip on the battle. This was his style, something he'd done in previous commands. It was also in the First Airborne tradition, though it had got his predecessor, Major General Hopkinson, killed in Italy. His presence at the front, described as flapping around like a great wet hen, had probably held up First Parachute Brigade's progress on the Monday, but on the morning of Tuesday 19th, he had reached his nadir. He was hiding in a loft in the town, having narrowly escaped meeting the same fate as his predecessor. It's an understatement to say that no one knew what was going on. We can look at the Arnhem battle now in its sectors with tidy maps and arrows explaining where people were, but it was being fought house to house, room to room in isolated pocket pockets. 
The general was missing. First parachute brigade, which should have been at the bridge two days ago, was missing its brigadier, who had vanished with the general. Lieutenant Colonel Doby of the 1st Battalion took charge. It was little use. A bogus report from Divisional HQ reached him telling that the bridge had fallen and he was to retreat to the village. He'd cancelled an attack on Monday evening as a result. At around 2.30 Tuesday morning he was told otherwise the bridge was still in British hands, he was to proceed. In the intervening hours of course the Germans had reorganised. Everything was as far from the divisional plan as it could be. First Airborne was expected to be stretched across a nine mile front by this stage of the battle but not actually fighting the battle in the centre of what was what meant to, was now meant to be the divisional area. They hadn't planned to fight in this part of Arnhem at all. The dawn attacks went in anyway. Men from 1st Parachute Battalion tried to get to their start line in time for the four o'clock start. They were suffering from the effects of the previous day's fighting. When they came to put in the attack, 1st Parachute Battalion numbered about 140 officers and men, less than a quarter of their established strength. Dobie could also draw on about 400 of the South Staffords who were also set to join the battle, as well as 11th Parachute Battalion, who were pretty much at full strength. At the same time, 3rd Parachute Battalion was, unknown to Dobie, about to try and attack along the same axis. Their strength similarly diminished to his. I told you it was confusing. But like the day before, the geography of this part of Arnhem came into play, and battalions used to exercising on Salisbury Plain and manoeuvring on empty fields were trying to force their way up, up what amounts to two streets. Their objective plain to the enemy, the element of surprise long gone. Getting as far as the hospital and the museum, about a mile or so from the bridge, was pretty straightforward. Getting beyond them was impossible. The town came down to an exposed choke point. East of the museum and the hospital is a steep bank. The road to the bridge splits and runs along the top and the bottom of the bank. There is no cover. The Germans had fallen back the night before to leave the area around the museum clear so that they could pour fire into it. On the opposite side of the river is a brickworks held by the SS. Any advance into Arnhem towards the bridge was exposed to fire from the front and from both flanks. Mortars took their toll. So much of the way the British Army had gained immediate and deadly dominance in Normandy was with its preponderance of artillery brought to bear with accuracy and savagery as well as pinpoint accurate counter-battery fire. First Airborne's men were being forced to fight a purely one-dimensional infantry battle against an enemy equipped with artillery, armoured personnel carriers and anti-aircraft cannon that they had no answer to. The Germans were able to deal with their airborne adversaries with a degree of tactical freedom that they'd not had for a couple of years and they made the most of it. The battle on the Tuesday morning became increasingly one-sided. First Parachute Battalion's war diary is a terse description of the morning's lack of progress right from the start. Heavy firing, shelling, mortaring coming down onto us. Tanks and half-tracks on high ground to left, enemy infantry cleared with bayonet and grenades, cleared to road junction, inflicted heavy casualties on enemy, remainer ran or surrendered. 0500 attacked by tanks, gammon bombs used by our company, two infantry guns captured, German prisoners come along with us, opposition ahead intense. The gammon bomb was a sticky bomb that had to be applied directly by hand to an armoured vehicle. I mean... I've read this a couple of times before, back to myself, and it's still really, really horrible. By 6.30, Doby ordered his battalion to call off its attack. He had 39 men left. At 07.30, as what was left of 1st Parachute Battalion surrendered, surrounded by tanks, overwhelmed by machine gun fire. 3rd Parachute Battalion's war diary told a similar story. Dawn to 10 hundred hours, progress was satisfactory until the area of the pontoon bridge, which is where we're talking about the museum. Casualties from the 1st Battalion then started passing through us. 
At about 07.30 hours, heavy enemy machine gun fire was directed onto the 3rd Battalion. This fire was from machine guns, some of the 20mm calibre, probably from armoured cars, and intense mortaring began. Another effort was made by the CO to find fire positions, but again his recce was fruitless. On return, casualties were being suffered at an ever-increasing rate, and the wounded were being rushed back in small groups every minute. The CO held a brief conference with his two IC and IO. It was decided that as his force was slowly being decimated without able to reply, he should withdraw to the pavilion and form a strong point there. The orders he gave were that every officer and man would make his way back to this point by the best way he could. No question of field craft this. The whole area seemed covered by fire and the only hope of getting out safely was by speed. With the withdrawal began immediately, casualties were heavy. The battalion CO, Lieutenant Colonel Fitch, was killed by a mortar as he tried to withdraw. Major Bush took over and did what he could to pull the together remnants of the battalion, sending men, men back in twos and threes towards the hospital and on towards the divisional area in the village. Bush got back to Oosterbeek and took over command of what was left of 1st Parachute Brigade. Bush had spent much of the previous day taking care of Urquhart and Lathbury. He'd done everything he could to make sure it passed without incident. He recalled seeing a German patrol only 20 yards away I could have see every bit of their equipment. I remember one had a big fat ass, and I thought, what a target. They were being very casual. Three of our men were ready to open fire, but I ordered them not to. RSM Lord was there and he nodded approval. You can't start a battle with a divisional commander and the brigadier in the same house. One byproduct of the morning's fighting was that Urquhart had been able to escape from his loft and make his way back to Vis divisional HQ. There he tried to get a grip on things. The officer he sent forward, Colonel Hilaro Barlow, was killed by mortar fire running from house to house. The South Staffords arrived, late, not getting underway until half an hour after 3rd Parachute Battalion. This made little difference as the area they were fighting through was now congested with the four units committed to the battle. The staffs did what they could to make progress. They came in greater strength than the other battalions and as glider-borne soldiers they had more heavy equipment. 11th Parachute Battalion were ordered to hold back from the battle and act as the South Staffords Reserve. As the staffs pushed on west, on the north road, they managed to get into the buildings around the museum, but no further. Rather than face the fire from the other side of the river, they instead faced armoured vehicles and mortaring. As the morning wore on, they ran out of Piet anti-tank rounds, and the German armour was able to press its attacks more ruthlessly. By lunchtime, two of the three staffs companies had been destroyed, the men trapped in the museum surrendering once they were surrounded. The third company, which had held back with 11th Parachute Battalion, was ordered to cut its losses and head back towards Oosterbeek. To do this, it would have to cross an open patch of land. It was decided that 11th Battalion would cover this retreat. The ground was impossible to dig into, the Germans spotted what was happening, and 11th Parachute Battalion were caught in the open, forming up and mortared heavily, and then they were attacked by German armour. Philip Newman was with 11th Parachute Battalion. The Germans are everywhere. Leading up to the southern end of the bridge is a quarter mile stretch of exposed territory. Officers shout encouragement to their men and soon everyone at the front is breaking into a scattered run like the charge of the light brigade at Balaclava, all heading for the bridge. Excitement, fear, enthusiasm, a million emotions written on Egyan faces. Then a German shell whooshes through the air and explodes nearby, killing one officer and several men. Their bodies are ripped into a hundred parts and scattered everywhere. This is the signal for the Germans that have been lying in wait to open fire. From the far riverbank, from the bridge, from buildings around the southern end of the bridge, the Germans unleash a devastating barrage of fire. It catches our men in the open and butchers them by the dozen. Nobody could possibly get through it. Men are scythed down like corn in a field and we can't get to the wounded because the risks are too high. Too many have already tried and died. For the men, this fighting was pitiless. 
They'd been in contact with the enemy the previous two days and were extremely tired. It must have been clear that the plan had unraveled completely. They fought hard, they didn't reach the bridge. George Benyon described the retreat. After the slaughter on the riverbank, everyone was retreating like a chaotic mob through the narrow streets, with the remaining officers, sergeants and corporals trying desperately to maintain some sort of control. Only it was impossible, especially after what had just happened. Everywhere there was the echoing sound of German mortar, anti-aircraft gun, rifle and machine gun fire, all too close, and all we wanted to do was get away from the carnage. Well before lunchtime, the push into the town had been abandoned. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Now we're in the woods. So we've done the bridge, we've done the town, now we come to the woods. First half of the day in the woods. The 4th Parachute Brigade's war diary is a simple enough line in it from the Monday night as to what Tuesday should hold. Task for 19th September. Advance be- between including Road Arnhem to Ada, include railway to secure high ground Copal, with a grid reference with firm left flank on road. Brigadier John Hackett, 33 years old and a rare thing, an intellectual soldier, he'd written a thesis about Saladin, had agreed grudgingly in General Urquhart's absence that one of his battalions, 11th Parachute Battalion, would go into the town. We've just heard of its fate. His remaining two battalions would attempt to swing round into the town through the woods. Hackett and his men had arrived on the Monday as part of the second lift. Operation Market Garden was so ambitious that not everyone could be delivered at once. It was for this reason that the whole of 1st Air Landing Brigade, who'd arrived by glider on the Sunday, were not fighting their way to the bridge. Rather, they were guarding the drop zones needed for later lifts, the tail wagging the dog, you might call it. Hackett's men had been delayed by bad weather in England too, and when they arrived at their drop zone, they'd been fired on. The element of surprise had worn off. But Hackett's task seemed simple enough. The woods to the north of the village and the northwest of the town rose to higher ground. Between the village and the town and these woods, ran the Arnhem to Amsterdam railway line through a cutting, dividing the area. Men could cross the tracks on foot, but getting vehicles such as jeeps with ammunition supplies across was tricky. Hackett's men would have to deploy north of the railway line and pushed east into the woods. The Germans being the Germans had spent the night reorganising and shortening their lines on the higher ground further east. The Germans had half-tracks, armoured cars, anti-aircraft cannon, the high ground fresh troops. Even without too much hindsight, it must be clear which way this is headed. The company met very heavy opposition, including self-propelled guns and armoured cars, and was brought to a standstill after suffering heavy casualties, including all the officers along the line of the track. All the officers. Half an hour later, B Company had their turn at the German blocking line. Their poorly performing radio sets meant they didn't realise that A Company were getting hammered. 0900 hours, B Company put in an attack on the same line of enemy defence, moving round the north of A Company and met the same heavy opposition. B Company command was then fatally wounded and heavy casualties were sustained. The morning continued in the same vein. 0930 hours, S Company and Battalion HQ put in a counter-attack and about 30 of the men in the battalion reached the road. So they did get to this magic road, but with only 30 men left. 1100 hours, B Company was attacked by ME109s and sustained heavy casualties. Even the Luftwaffe had shown up, the Germans getting a rare chance to fight three-dimensionally. Incredibly, Major Potts of A Company, although he was wounded after a bayonet charge, made it with six other men to his company's objective and managed to hold on for an hour before he was captured. Now, company's about 150 men, so six, him and were six of his men. It's an idea of how desperate things were. At lunchtime, Hackett ordered 156 Battalion to disengage. The morning's attack had halved their strength. James Laurie's account conveys the chaos. I could see what was going on up front with men falling everywhere. Some screaming as they lay wounded, others chopped to bits and unrecognisable. The CO reacted quickly and ordered one of the other companies to outflank them, but the Germans were ready for that and forced them to retreat, as they'd set up mutually supporting machine guns. Luckily, the ground was easy to dig into, and we had to dig very quickly to prevent getting overrun. One man was killed right next to me. Hackett's other battalion, the 10th, was to the north, advancing down the Amsterdam Weg on 156 Battalion's left flank. 
The expectation was they would not meet much opposition. When they reached the petrol station on the junction with the Dreyensweg, which runs south across the Amsterdamsweg, they came under the same kind of heavy fire, cannon, mortars, machine guns. Lieutenant Colonel Smythe replied with mortar fire until he ran out of ammunition. The petrol station was hit, it blew up, and the tiles from its roof took a minute to descend. Smythe remarked, the landlord won't like that. Smythe and his men hadn't been as badly mauled as 156 Battalion, but they were in danger of being flanked if the other battalion withdrew, left exposed in the woods against a superior enemy. Tuesday morning in the woods had been nothing short of a disaster. Hackett's two battalions had made no progress beyond the eastern edge of Oosterbeek. They wouldn't get through to the bridge. In this they had failed within 24 hours of arriving in Holland. They had nowhere to go. The enemy had the upper hand. Hackett would have to decide what to do that afternoon to save his brigade from being totally destroyed and somehow contribute to the effort to reach the bridge. An hour in the village in Oosterbeek. After midnight on Tuesday, the division was still leaderless, but not short of senior officers with opinions on what should happen. The brigadiers were arguing. Brigadier Hackett and Brigadier Hicks, the 1st Air Landing Brigade, were rowing in divisional headquarters, the Huttenstein Hotel, about Hicks' decision to take 11th Battalion from Hackett's 4th Parachute Brigade and send it into the town. The question of seniority had raised its head. Hicks had served in the First World War. Hackett was 33. Hicks had arrived on the Sunday and had been on the scene longer. Hackett had landed on the Monday and was new to things. But Hackett had received his commission as brigadier first, so claimed seniority. A situation not unlike the infamous dispute at Rourke's drift about rank. No one, least of all Roy, Roy Urquhart, had envisaged Urquhart disappearing. He was rumoured to be dead. The Germans had got wind of his disappearance from POWs and broadcast it on loudspeakers. Hicks was having to make it up as he went along, try to regain the initiative and create some momentum and get to the bridge. He was faced with the rumours about Frost's stand at the bridge having failed, deadlock in the town as 1st Parachute Brigade tried to get through to Frost, and a decision about whether to continue with the planned advance through the woods of the recently arrived 4th Parachute Brigade, and had to deal with their peppery commanding officer Hackett. But what else could be done? In Urquhart's absence, reinforcing the units trying to get into the town and trying to apply pressure from elsewhere seemed to be the best and only options. When Urquhart did finally reappear that morning at about 7.30, he took stock of the situation, regretting not staying in the town to coordinate the 4 battalion attack that had enabled him to escape. He immediately set off to see how Hackett was getting on. Around the Hartenstein, a perimeter was beginning to form as the units that had been guarding the landing and drop zones withdrew east. The King's own Scottish borderers, now under Hackett's command as part of a trade-off, moved to the northern end of the village, roughly parallel to where Hackett's men were attacking north of the railway line to defend a landing zone, landing zone L, that the Poles were due to arrive at in the morning. The border regiment, whose lines ran down to the river, moved back towards the village too. The Germans hadn't put the borderers under too much pressure. They were eight miles from the bridge and weren't worth the effort. As the attacks in the town and the woods failed, and men started to head west towards the village, there was a growing sense that the screw was being tightened. At 11.15 that morning, the recce squadron reported 100 German tanks arriving in Arnhem from nearby Appledorn. Urquhart, without a grip on the bridge and no way of knowing how long Frost could hold out for, set off to visit Hackett's brigade to find out how his attempt to get into the town through the woods was going. It was that visit that set the scene for the afternoon. And so we go back to the woods and the arrival of the Polish gliders on landing zone L. So here we are, in the woods, afternoon to midnight. At 2.30, Urquhart ordered Hackett to abandon his attacks through the woods and withdraw. And you can see why, in order to help with the push into the town south of the railway line. This order seemed an awful lot like the 
kind of thing you should never do, retreat while engaged with the enemy. Lieutenant Colonel Smythe was heard to say, when asked whether this is the right course of action, he said that we will do whatever we're bloody told. Hackett's two battalions, pursued by the Germans, had to get back across the railway line. As the two battalions fell back through the King's own Scottish borderers' positions, at four o'clock, the Polish gliders began to arrive. This lift of Polish heavy equipment, anti-tank guns and jeeps and supplies in many ways characterises the profoundly flawed and overconfident plan that the British were grappling with. These supporting arms and men were landing on the other side of the river from the infantry component they were supposed to be complementing. And because of bad weather, the parachuting Poles infantry didn't set off from England at all. Louis Hagen, a German Jew who was himself a glider pilot and flown in the first lift, had been attached to 156 Battalion, described the scene. Now the sky was chaos, puffs of exploding shells, bombers alight, bombers plunging towards the earth, gliders casting off and banking steeply, and in between all this, an irregular thick pattern of parachutes, men and supplies floating down. As Hackett's men withdrew, the gliders started their final approach, and German anti-aircraft fire turned its attention to the poles. Descending gliders were vulnerable to anti-aircraft and small arms fire until they reached the tree line. One was shot out of the sky, but many gliders made heavy landings. Their equipment, meant for the men who hadn't arrived on the other side of the river, was irretrievable. Only three of the ten anti-tank guns delivered could be retrieved. The retreat continued around them. Hackett's battalions joined by the King's Own Scottish borderers, who no longer needed to guard the landing zone. Men scrambled across the train tracks. The Germans sniped at them. As one large body of men their, made their way across the landing zone, a group of Germans stepped out of the woods, forcing their surrender en masse. In the rush to get back into the village, the brigade's vehicles had to drive back to the level crossing at Wolfhazer several miles west until engineers found a drainage tunnel that ran under the railway track with about enough room for a jeep. Desperate. Hagen again. We joined a long stream of troops of all units walking rather quickly down the slope. Disorganisation started when we had to cross an, an open field which led to the railway lines. The field was under rather inaccurate fire but still made it everyone run. When we reached the other side we were not an organised body of men but everyone was disciplined and quieted themselves, there was no shouting or pushing. We helped each other along, said sorry, we were just dazed and found the retreat rather incomprehensible. 10th Battalion, down to 100 men, fought a rearguard action while vehicles and men queued up to get under the railway line. In a strip of woodland around Wolfhazer, they were able to demonstrate once again how formidable they were in defence. Ironic, as the plan to take Arnhem Bridge had relied on so much of what airborne soldiers weren't suited to do. As well-trained and motivated as they were, might be, they weren't good at attack. They waited into the night until the Germans came to Wolfhazer and the attack didn't come. But the push into the woods was over. The remnants of Hackett's brigade stopped for the night exhausted and defeated, their only option to rejoin what was left of the division in the village. Since it had landed the previous afternoon, 4th Parachute Brigade had been reduced from its initial strength of around 2,500 men to 400. Now we're in the village again. In the village, the third lift had arrived, a resupply drop had come in. In the air plan, the RAF had not anticipated the situation the division would now find themselves in. Drop zones in enemy hands, German flak unsuppressed. But then no one had. One of the effects of the plan going so badly wrong in the last 48 hours was that everything else would now go wrong too. 164 transport command aircraft were due to arrive over Arnhem. A knock-on effect of the air plan was that resupply plans to other parts of the Allied effort in Northern Europe had been put on hold. Over two-thirds of these aircraft were damaged by enemy fire. 13 planes shot down, 55 aircrew killed. The crews flew into the flak regardless. Flight Lieutenant David Lord flying his plane through enemy flak and staying at the controls of his Dakota until his crew could escape 
earning him one of the five Victoria Crosses of the Arnhem campaign. Because radio communications had failed, the men on the ground were unable to divert the incoming transport planes away from the pre-arranged drop zones and towards their own makeshift DZs. RAF crew were trained to ignore signals on the ground in case they were from the enemy. Supplies fell into German hands. Several accounts also mentioned the containers full of maroon berets sent into the resupply drop. German soldiers helped themselves to chocolate, cigarettes and medical supplies. At the same time, the village was being flooded by men escaping the fighting in the town. The men of 1st, 3rd, 11th parachute battalions as well as the South Staffords. Urquhart saw the state there in first hand and recalled it in his memoirs, written only 14 years after the event. A crowd of men were streaming across the green in front of the Hartenstein, heading west back towards the drop zones they landed on outside the village. Urquhart heard a shout, the Germans are coming. They were young soldiers whose self-control had momentarily deserted them, he wrote. I shouted at them, I had to intervene physically. It's unpleasant to have to restrain soldiers by force and threats, as we now had to. We ordered them back into the positions they deserted, and I had a special word with the tall young officer who in his panic had set such a disgraceful example. In some accounts, he's rumoured to have drawn his pistol. Urquhart set about organising the stragglers into a new defensive command in the western half of the village and in the woods around the Hartenstein Hotel. The perimeter extended to the church on the road before the marshy riverbank where a Major Lonsdale had taken charge of the men he'd accumulated there. The elements of 1st Airborne Division that had tried to fight their way to the bridge had been cut to shreds. Only 500 men from 1st Parachute Brigade had made it back from the town, 400 from the woods. Many men had been captured, overrun by the Germans as they retreated. 3rd Parachute Battalion's War Diary states, 1600 hours after a day of very confusing fighting, the remains of the brigade withdrew to the village where they were allotted the southeast sector of a small isolated perimeter with 150 men of 11 Battalion holding the north and 60 men of South Staffords holding the southwest. We had four anti-tank guns. The force consisted of approximately 120 men of the 1st Battalion commanded by Lieutenant Williams and 60 men of 3rd Battalion commanded by Captain Dorian Smith. Night 19th 20th, the night was reasonably quiet and most men were able to obtain a few hours badly needed sleep. The rest of Urquhart's strength came from the supporting troops that made up the division. Sappers, Remy, Gunners, Pathfinders and the largest contingent, some 1,200 glider pilots, trained to varying standards as infantrymen. Provision was made for casualties, Dutch civilians helped with the growing numbers of wounded. As night fell, Urquhart prepared to make the best of a bad job and by holding the northern bank of the Nader Rhine offered Second Army the opportunity of a crossing. He couldn't help Frost at the bridge, but he had to do something. Urquhart was making the best of the bad job and holding on until Second Army arrived and it was the only option available. And now we're back at the bridge. At midday, Frost had finally made radio contact with Divisional HQ and was able to learn what had obviously happened, that the rest of First Parachute Brigade had got stuck trying to fight its way into the town and was in retreat. Had he known this was sooner, it would have made no difference to his situation at the bridge as it was. Second Army had also still not arrived. At first, the Germans got closer and were able to move more easily. They gave up trying to use infantry to assault the houses around the bridge and instead use armoured vehicles, standing off at a sufficient distance and shelling the Paris houses with phosphorus shells in an attempt to burn them out. As well as injuring men horribly, this meant that Frost's men were now divided between fighting the Germans and putting out fires. The battle diary remains cool-headed about their predicament. Tuesday was a repetition of Monday with no appreciable worsening of the situation except for an increase in casualties and a growing shortage of ammunition. The most serious deficiency was in peart bombs, of which we had none now and had none left, and so had no method of dealing with tanks which had shelled our houses at very close range. The six-pounders still kept the bridge and western approaches covered, but could not maintain positions east of the bridge. 
The reason they couldn't maintain this position was the arrival of, from Germany of Tiger tanks. While every tank in the West gets reported as being a Tiger, these machines belonging to Kampfgruppe Brinkmann made their debut on the scene and definitely were Tigers. First air landing anti-tank battery did what they could defend the Tigers off with their six-pounders. With a Sabo round, a six-pounder could deal with the Tiger if it got close enough, but the gun crews needed to be incredibly brave. They tried to lure the Tigers into a trap at the cost of one of the crews. By any reckoning, Frost's situation seemed helpless. He was short of ammunition, 150 of his men were injured. The Germans were able to attack his position with weaponry that he simply had no answer to. All that he could do was hold on and hope the Second Army would arrive, lead by example and keep his men's spirits up. As we prepared for yet another night, Arnhem was burning. The patrols we sent to probe the ring about us made no progress. It was like daylight in the streets. The night was fairly peaceful. I prowled about occasionally, sleeping in between whiles amongst the litter in one of the rooms. Sometimes a light rain fell. I saw two hatless figures down the road and took a shot at them with a borrowed rifle, but neither moved. During the day, we had taken it in turns to wait with the sniper's rifle for a German officer to show himself in a window of the house, which we presume was our HQ, some 400 yards away. I'd spent an hour watching in vain, but others had been more successful and our guns had strafed it from time to time. When I looked up after reloading, the figures I'd fired at were gone. 24 hours had passed. What would Wednesday hold? Thanks for listening. Hashtag we have ways.